Hey there, it's Shelly. Before we get started with the show, I want to let you know about something fun going on at Relay FM. It is the membership sale. Every year around this time for the holiday season, Relay puts memberships on sale. And if you haven't bought one yet, or if you'd like to upgrade to an annual plan, or you'd like to give a membership to Relay FM to somebody you care about, this is a great time to do that. If you go to relay.fm slash membership and use code HOLIDAYS2024, you get 20% off any annual plan. That's a plan you give to somebody or a plan you keep for yourself. Why should you join Relay FM? Well, there's a lot of great behind-the-scenes stuff that you might not know about. There is a Relay FM Discord where a lot of the hosts are active. There is a monthly newsletter that gives you a little bit up-close and personal look at what happens at Relay FM and the people behind it. There are also a couple of podcasts that are behind-the-scenes glimpses of how Relay FM works. And finally, there's members-only content that all of us produce each year just to let you know that we're thinking of you and that we really appreciate your being a part of the Relay FM family. So again, that's relay.fm slash membership. If you want to express your support for Parallel as a member of Relay FM, I'd love it if you do that. Uh, there's an opportunity to support individual shows or the whole network. Support for an individual show not only helps us hosts out a little bit, but it also kind of casts a vote. So if you really like Parallel and you have been thinking about joining Relay FM but haven't been sure about it, there's no better time than now when you get 20% off an annual plan. Go to relay.fm slash membership and sign up now. And thanks so much for listening. Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 88. My guest today is the developer of a really interesting app for folks with low vision. Her name is Rebecca Rosenberg, and the app is called Roboka. And rather than give you a long introduction, I think I would love to have Rebecca tell us a little bit about the app she's developed. And uh, we're going to learn something about what the app does and also her process and how this uh, project came to be. Uh, first up, uh, Rebecca, welcome to Parallel. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's great to meet you, and it's great to hear about your app. I confess I, I didn't know about it before uh, recently, but it's been out for around a year or so, right? Can you can you talk about what Roboka is and who it's for? Yeah, absolutely. So the Roboka app started um, basically because I have a vision impairment and struggled to find technology that I felt like was really appropriate for me. And so started started the company actually out of my dorm room when I was 21. And um, kind of had this idea of, you know, creating a digital magnifier-like device, but allowing you to do all of those things on the device that you were already carrying around with you. So on your phone, um, because the camera hardware and the, the screen resolution were all just so good, it, it kind of seemed like a no-brainer to me. And so... As a student, I sort of mocked up uh, in Microsoft PowerPoint, of all things, kind of what I wanted this to look like and, and a user interface that I felt like sort of made sense and would be easy to follow along with and was sort of icon-based so that there was nothing that really needed to be read. Um, and then I said, you know, okay, you know, I've got three quarters of a, of a biomedical engineering degree, you know, I can do this. I can, I can develop an app. This will be no problem, no big deal. And I very distinctly remember uh, sitting on my my bed in my dorm room for 
just about an entire full day just trying to get the camera capability up and running on on Xcode. And I would come to find out uh, over a year after that later that that is actually a very non-trivial thing to do. Um, but after I realized, you know, after that day that I, I couldn't do it, I was like, gee, maybe maybe this is not what I should be doing. Maybe I maybe there are other parts of this that I, I should work on first. Um, and so basically, we we created the Reboca app as a, a digital magnifying esque tool. Uh, I ended up bringing on a software engineer who would actually build the whole original version. We sent it through a year in beta with more than 100 people who have vision impairments or, or work in the low vision space to hone in on exactly what functionalities made sense to make sure that everything was accessible and that it worked well for people. And we officially launched the Reboca app in June of 2022. So that would be about, I guess, almost a year and a half ago, which feels crazy. It, you know, everything, everything happens so fast. <laughs> Wow, that's a lot. So, so you have this uh, this technical. Uh, we're almost to this technical degree, but that doesn't sound like a degree that would teach you about coding. So, you did you come to iOS development with any coding background at all? Um, yes. So my my background's in biomedical engineering, which is basically like a survey of all of the different types of engineering, and then we learn how to actually apply a lot of those things to medicine. And so BMEs are basically the generalists of engineering. We can kind of come up with the whole sort of systems architecture and, and the plan, and then, you know, we pass things off to software engineers or electrical engineers or mechanical engineers to, like, actually do the math correctly. Um and so I, I had some experience and I had actually really enjoyed coding to that point. I did a lot of stuff in Python. You know, we work with MATLAB, all sorts of different things. I was like, how hard could Xcode be? You know, this, is, this can't possibly like really be that difficult. And um, so I started, started there and, and realized pretty quickly that I was not going to be the software engineer on the project, but that I knew enough to guide pretty much all, even to this day, of the technical aspects in the right direction. Because you're the ultimate user for the app, and obviously with visual impairment yourself, you're going to develop an app that's going to work best for your needs. Uh, but it's also not the first magnifying app out there. There certainly were third-party apps out there, and then Apple has enhanced its own magnifier app over the years. Have you felt concern that Apple's magnifier app was sort of coming too close to your territory? Or do you feel like you've carved out a specific niche for what you do? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so specifically, you know, to start more generally, I guess, um, the magnifier apps that are out there, I am familiar with, I, I even was familiar with at the time. And I just felt they just made me feel sad. Um, because it was very clear that somebody like cared a little bit, maybe 10 years ago, and, you know, kind of threw something together in what appeared to be a weekend and didn't really put much thought into the functionalities actually working or, or, or to keep up with the, the development and make sure that as new um, iOS versions came out that those things still worked. There were a lot of apps that, you know, when, when Apple introduced the notch and they, they took away sort of the, the just rectangular screen where a lot of the icons would kind of bump into the notch in a way that like didn't make any sense. And it, it just made me kind of sad that nobody had kept up with the way that that technology had been moving. And so that was sort of even more of a motivator for me, I think, to develop something that actually worked and actually took advantage of the extent of really fantastic hardware that you have, especially on an Apple device. 
on the other side, you know, you kind of have Apple Magnifier, which I I think is a good technology. You know, I think it's it's coming from a good place. I appreciate um, how much Apple does, not just for the low vision community, but for accessibility in general. But I think there's a lot of problems with Magnifier, uh, not the least of which being how challenging it is to kind of figure out how to use. Um, Magnifier initially came to me um, also while I was a student, and I remember kind of playing around with it and being like, I don't, I don't quite understand what's going on here. And then, you know, I'd find a combination of, of settings that were kind of good, but then I'd want to change them, and there was no kind of way to easily revert them all back. Um, and as it turns out, you know, my, my hypothesis, hypothesis about um, Magnifier not being the best user experience really did continue um, to, to be something that it was something we heard from our users a lot once we put Roboka in beta. The other thing is that, you know, Apple being the size that it is really has to build for everybody. And while that's incredibly important, I think the biggest challenge with that is that by building technology that is really appropriate for people who are totally blind or very near totally blind, you are kind of by definition making it more difficult for people like myself who have a moderate impairment and who um, really have a lot of good usable vision and, and want to be able to use that because you're crowding a technology with kind of features that totally jump over or, or yeah, to totally get around vision um, and they, they default to audio-based capabilities. And I think that's something that Apple Magnifier is sort of bumping into as a problem now is that and they've built all these really good capabilities, um, and they've built something really good for the blind or, or totally blind community. But for people like myself, which is most of the visually impaired population, the features that are actually useful to us for vision enhancement are really not, um, not easily accessible anymore. Yeah, Magnifier is focused on the LiDAR equipped things that let you do people detection and door detection and stuff exactly. like that. So what are some of the things that you feel like Roboka does that specifically address the needs of folks with low vision? Yeah. So we avoid, um, you know, at least at this stage, kind of defaulting to other senses that are not vision. We are very much um, and always will be a vision enhancement tool for the visually impaired, not a vision replacement tool for the visually impaired. And so, you know, we've got your basic things that you're used to seeing, like contrast, um, and, and, and exposure and some different like inversion options. We're really uh, diving into all of those inversion options, you know, all the way to like the yellow on blue that some people like and, and some people hate. We allow um, users to actually add color transparencies over top of whatever it is they're looking at, which is was really inspired by physical like plastic sheets of colored plastic. Uh, that I received when I was a child and my teachers were like, just just take this like yellow sheet and put it over top of, of what you're trying to read. And I remember even being a kid and thinking like, this is weird. You know, what, what is this piece of like yellow plastic going to do for me? And it really ultimately made a huge difference for me uh, when I was reading because it just removed some glare. It sort of helped soften everything. It was just easier on my eyes. And so I think we're the first technology, to my knowledge, to, to recreate that digitally, which is something we're really proud of. And we also put a big emphasis on um, kind of multiple presets. So understanding that people with vision impairments 
really want different things in a lot of different scenarios. It's not a you know, one one set of settings works perfectly for you in every scenario. It's like, here's here's what I need in kind of every different setting. And I think that's one of the places that Roboka shines is that we understand all of the nuances of having a vision impairment, not just because I have one, but because we've really taken the time and put in the energy and effort to bring together the low vision community and actually ask them what they need and what they want and how we can build the technology to be more accessible to them. And we're really hitting on all of those nuances and those details of what it's like to actually go through your daily life with this. I feel like that, uh, the presets, I'm a huge fan of presets in general, but I feel like that's really underappreciated in the sense that if you're a person with low vision, how you interact with what you can see really varies by the ambient light and by the color of the text versus the color of the background. So I can see all sorts of scenarios where you would create, I think you described, I watched your uh, your demo video and you described, you know, going to class and maybe you're looking at a a whiteboard and you're trying to decipher what's on that board and your need for color uh, enhancement would be different than if you were trying to read a sign at a fast food restaurant or a street sign or something like that. And I, I guess I wonder, have you thought about connecting those presets to things like uh, focus modes or shortcuts or anything else in the rest of iOS so that it would make it even easier for people. See, I'm already adding stuff to your plate, but (laughs) I I just wonder, because iOS has all of this automation stuff built in, and I wonder if there's a way to make your presets talk to those. Yeah. um, So we are actually actually doing all of those things and more. So um, one of the things just to kind of give you an example is I have the, the iPhone 15 and instead of the little switch that used to exist to make your phone either like on silent or not on silent, they replaced that with the action button, action which button, you yeah. can, yeah, exactly. So you can set that up to do whatever you want it to do. And so I have mine actually set up to launch the Roboka app, which I was like, you know, oh, you know, I'm the CEO of this company. Like I should, I should give this a shot, um, and, and see what happens, but Using it, it actually saves a lot of time. I, I really like it. I fully am in support of making use of and, and taking advantage of the automations and the things that Apple has really given us to work with within their ecosystem and you know, creating a technology that is most accessible and most useful to this population, you know, even if we're taking advantage of things that Apple currently does. I think beyond that, Um, And beyond just kind of, you know, plugging into shortcuts and things, which you can do, we are working on a lot of AI-based tools that will help automatically create the best visual experience for a user. And I can't elaborate on that too much more at this stage, um, but we're really excited about the ability to be learning from our users and to be able to basically the same way that Instagram or your, your social media learns what you like to see. Um, Roboka will learn how you like to see. And we're really excited to be launching some of the first aspects of that in beta in, um, at the, in early next year. 
Oh, that's really interesting because I can see, and you don't confirm or deny, whichever, but I can see you're taking advantage of the ambient environment as the camera sees it or time of day or location-based. There's all sorts of things you could do that could, you know, because maps can, maps always wants to take me to my coffee shop that I go to on yeah. Saturday mornings. And map and uh, Roboca could also tell me, well, the menu for that place is uh, white text on black background. So here's the way I need to deal with that. That's, that's an interesting idea. Um, so... Talk about this sort of beta process. You said you had a lot of people that, that tested the app once you sort of got it up and running. What kind of feedback did you get, and did any of it surprise you or change the direction of the app? Yeah, we got a ton of really good feedback out of the gate. Um, you know, it was it was just me and our, our CTO at the earliest stages, and I had no experience in software, you know, in iOS development, and he had no experience in accessibility. And so it was just sort of the two of us, like, trying to figure it out together. And so we pulled together the first version of the app based on this PowerPoint presentation that I created when I was 21. And, you know, we, we had something initially that didn't work with voiceover. And part of the reason for that was just because we didn't know. And so that was one of the first pieces of feedback we got was like, hey, this is supposed to be a vision accessibility tool and it doesn't work with voiceover. Um, and so that was something that we, you know, immediately were able to adjust to. Um, we also tried out a few different user interfaces because I think that a great tool is not great if you can't figure out how to use it. And so creating a user experience that was really simple, um, and really clear without too much explanation was a big goal of ours. And so we tried out a few different ones of those and um, finally came to the version that exists today. We also, um, I think one of, the, one of the stories I like to tell about the beta process was, you know, when you're zooming in on your phone, the gesture that people are used to is sort of that two finger like pinch kind of thing. And the, the feedback we got was, hey, you know, that's great and all, and it makes sense, but now I'm using, I now I need both my hands in order to use Roboca properly. Can you enable me to do this with one hand? And so we got rid of the pinch to zoom capability and actually created a slide to zoom capability. And so now with just one finger, you slide up or down on the screen and that will zoom you in or out. So that was a really exciting kind of piece of, of feedback that we got that we were able to act on. Um, there was also, you know, a whole bunch of little things here and there about like bugs and um, ways that we could just make people's lives a little bit easier based on kind of where we placed all the buttons. Um, but we were, we were pretty lucky that, and I think, you know, it, it, there's something to be said about the fact that I had a vision impairment and I knew a lot of the things people were going to kind of want to say because I also lived in that world. And so we created something really right out of the gate that was, you know, 75% good. Um, and all of those beta testers helped get us the extra 25% of the way. Yeah, I feel like you did something kind of unique in the interface. I've seen a lot of magnifier apps too, as well as Apple's magnifier. And a lot of them put all of the buttons in a little bar at the bottom or the top of the screen, which means that the buttons tend to be smaller. And I noticed in your app, you, you've focused on that you have buttons on either side, up and down the screen, and they seem to be a little bigger to me. And I, I didn't try to figure out what they did. With, I could watch the video before I used the app, so I kind of had a, a heads up. But do you feel like 
the that that button placement and the icon the iconography that you've used on the buttons has been pretty understandable to most people. And the slide to zoom, of course, is a new gesture for folks who are used to that pinch to zoom. But I'm I'm hearing you say that to your users, that's a good thing as opposed to a confusing one. Yeah, the buttons the buttons are bigger. And as a matter of fact, if you go into your settings, the button size is adjustable. Ooh, nice. And so I think I think we have four different sizes. It's like small, medium, large, and extra large. And so I think I personally sit around medium because they just take up less space. But if you have, you know, a more severe vision impairment or even dexterity issues and you want them to be extra large, or they your can be extra large. Or smaller. Yeah, exactly. It, on an iPad. Because on an SE, I would think that would be a mess. But on an iPad, yeah, you might be able to take the big buttons. Exactly. And the other thing that we did kind of to that to that point is if you just tap the middle of the screen um, where there are no buttons, all the buttons will go away. So you can then see with your whole screen. And so if you want to have extra large buttons, but then you're like, hey, I have no screen real estate to actually look at anything, um, you can make all of your adjustments with your big buttons, tap the screen, the buttons will go away, you can see what's going on, and then you can tap your tap your screen again and all the buttons will come back and they're the same, the same size. I've got one more question about the technology, then I want to learn a little bit about you. And this is one, I, I've been hearing this one lately from people who don't really follow accessibility or know how it works. And so I just want to kind of hear your take on it. There are people out there who talk about how Apple's cameras and their phones are getting better and how somehow that makes it easier for apps that do vision accessibility stuff to to do their work. And I always shake my head at that because you don't really need a 48 megapixel uh, uh, camera system in order to do that. But I guess I, I do wonder, as cameras have become better and changed, and as you deal with cameras in different iPhone models, does the camera system in a specific iPhone affect the way you develop the app? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that, you know, a couple of thoughts on this. I think the first one is People with disabilities, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree with me on this, people with disabilities deserve the best. Um, you know, we deserve to make use of the most up-to-date camera systems and, you know, the best the best screen resolution. With that said, you know, the difference between a, you know, 24-megapixel camera and a 48-megapixel camera is not a ton until you're starting to zoom in really far away um, or you are really looking for that like little bit of detail that tells you whether that is an eight or a nine, um, you know, or a, or a six or a nine um, on something that you're looking at. I don't think that it affects too significantly how the app is developed as much as, you know, what some of those, what the limits of some of the capabilities are. With that being said, I think there's more to it than just the improvements in the camera system. It is the improvements in the screen resolution, in the screen brightness. It's the um, the inclusion of you know the the neural uh, the neural chips. What are they called? Oh gosh, it's well, machine learning, the neural neural engine that runs the neural on, engine. The machine, yeah, yes, um, and the more advanced you know GPUs that they're stuffing into the iPhones now. Um, and so, a good camera is sort of necessary and. You'll see the difference a little bit on on any camera app between something that is maybe older and just has one camera to the ones that, you know, mesh three different lenses now into like one whole image. In addition to all of those things, 
Apple has continued to pack, specifically Apple, has continued to pack um, really powerful camera hardware into their devices. And, you know, you'll also see that every time they, they do, a, you know, a launch event, they're talking about all of these major computational steps that they're taking between an actual camera physically capturing an image and then what you actually see on your phone when you take a picture. And in my opinion, our phone kind of camera app that takes pretty pictures is really kind of over-computationalized at this point and is almost creating a picture that looks fake or like just not quite right because there are so many computation steps that are happening before you actually get to see the picture that you took. Um, and as someone who kind of comes to this from a photography background a little bit, it makes me kind of sad because some of the some of the fun stuff that I want to do um, and you know the adjustments that I want to make are almost not possible anymore because Apple has added all of these computational layers. And so I think it does change sort of for somebody like Roboka or for, for a company like Roboka to be able to kind of take the pure input from the camera and optimize for vision enhancement instead of optimizing to take an aesthetically pleasing image is sort of a really interesting opportunity. Um, I find myself even sometimes going to the Roboka app because I'm like, I just want like a more pure image from the camera as opposed to this sort of like over-processed thing that I'm, I'm now getting from my phone camera. This is just an aside, but I happened to read an article last week about people who take selfies and they would pose themselves and they'd get the selfie to look just right in the viewfinder and then they would take it and then the selfie would not look like what they thought it would because mm -hmm. of all the processing power. I never even thought about that, but it's like now I want to write about that because it's really interesting. It is. It is. And it's like all of a sudden I can see all of the texture on my face. And yeah. I'm like, that's not that's not what I want. That's not natural. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about like how your, your journey, how all this came to be. So you talked about sitting in your dorm room and working with Xcode and making this app. But, but at some point you figured that you needed not only some help, but I guess you, you wanted to get it out to the world. So what were some of the, the steps you had to take to sort of go from your dorm room to getting an app in the app store? Holy moly. Um, so many steps. Divide that up however you like. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was very much a um, it was very much a process. And I think, you know, now that I have done it once, there's a lot of things that I think I could do significantly more efficiently a second time. But, you know, when you're going into it brand new and, you know, my background's in engineering, um, I did not know anything about creating a business um, or, or developing a technology with the intention of, of selling it. And so there was a lot of education that had to happen there really for me by fire to figure out, okay, you know, how do I, how do I do this? And so it started as a grant that I got from my undergrad to, to do a project for a summer and I was like, okay, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, like, vision assistance technology thing. I'm unhappy with the technology that's available. Let me see what I can do about that. And so it started for the first several weeks as, like, a, you know, well, actually, I'll back up. It started for the first week as a let me just talk to every single person who will listen to me talk um, about what I'm trying to do. 
And I spent literally a whole week um, doing pretty much nothing but talking to people about what I wanted to do. And, you know, I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs who will do that for a really, really, really long time and never make any steps toward actually doing what they're talking about. Um, And that is not good. But I think there is something to be said for talking to as many people as possible about what you're doing and not stopping doing that, especially when you're building something that is for a social good. And so I kind of did that for about a week or so and then said, okay, you know, I've got all of these thoughts, you know, let me see what's out there. Let me see what's available. Let me see how much it is. Let me see how people sort of present it and what what maybe good things are, there are and maybe what flaws there potentially are. And was able to kind of learn a lot that way. The whole first summer was really just me getting a grasp of the industry and getting a grasp on the space and learning about other vision impairments that weren't just mine and what those people needed um, based on, on their condition. And then it sort of moved into this like, okay, you know, came up with the idea to sort of do it as an app, you know, tried to do it myself, realized I couldn't do it. And then that kind of started what was probably an 18 month hunt for a software engineer that would work with a 22 year old for free um, and build, build an app, Um, (laughs) which is a lot. (laughs) It is. It, it absolutely is a lot. And it was, I think, and I, you know, I mentioned that part because I know that it's a problem a lot of non-technical founders face. Um, and even I think, you know, as I sit here, very much a technical founder, it was a problem I faced. Um, and I am actually quite glad in hindsight that I needed to bring on a, a software engineer because if I had not absolutely needed to bring on a software engineer, I would still to this day be the software engineer on the project and I would be trying to do everything completely by myself and we just would not have ever gotten anywhere. Um, and so that is, you know, it took a very long time to find somebody who, who, would, who would work with me. And thankfully, you know, I think I got a little bit lucky that it was the pandemic and, um, I met Jacob, who is is our CTO to this day, um, who also went to the same undergrad as me. And we didn't know one another, but we had a professor in common and got introduced. And, you know, December of 2020, he was like, yeah, you know, I'll do this for some equity, you know, in, in a company that that is only relatively new. And, um, you know, it, it ended up working out really well. And he sort of built the very first version based on my PowerPoint presentation. And then we sort of just wanted to to put it out there and to say, you know, okay, let's let's talk to people about it. Let's see what they think. I had probably an advisory board of like 20 people at that point. And so the app kind of went through the whole advisory board and it was like every week we were we were presenting it to a new por- person on the advisory board and and getting their individual feedback and you know, we had launched it with our about 100 beta users that we had also amassed in that time. And we're just consistently listening to them, adding new features, doing new things. And, you know, I, I think really it was just a matter of, of putting it out there and seeing what happened. And, you know, I, I will say what ultimately ended up happening was a lot of things. Um, we ended up, you know, winning a lot of pitch competitions. People really liked what we were doing, um, not only because I think we were coming at it from a unique angle, um, but also because the technology was good. 
And we somehow made our way all of the way to the Consumer Electronics Show, which is like the biggest technology conference in the world that happens every year at the beginning of the year in Las Vegas. And we, we went to CES. We managed to get a, a free booth, which is so, so exciting. And like two weeks before we went there, a journalist reached out to me and was like, hey, this is really cool. Um, can we do a piece on you? And I said, yeah, sure, of course. Um, and that journalist ended up being a, a BBC journalist. And she created a really beautiful five-minute piece about Roboka and about kind of my story. And that played all over the entire world for weeks. And um, we saw a significant increase in adoption of the technology as a result of that. I actually had an advisor in Qatar send me a picture of myself on TV. And I hadn't spoken to that guy in over a year at that point. And it was just, he was like, ah, look, it's you. You know, and he was like, I'm in Doha. I was like, no way. That's pretty crazy. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of, and then, uh, you know, things start to fall into place. I think once you get like a little bit of traction like that. Right, and then you have to take advantage of it. You have to be right. ready for either if, if you're if you're in the app store already, you have to be ready for all those downloads. Or if you're not, you have to be able to say, "Okay, hang on, we'll be ready in six months." So, where were you in the process when all of that attention started to hit you? I think that we were really lucky, and I was saying this at the time that anything I would have liked to have propped up by the time we got that type of international attention was propped up. And so the app was ready to go. You know, we were able to handle that many people. Our wait list for the Android version of Roboco, which does not exist yet, was available as like a Google form. And so that was on the website and, and people could see that. We had a website. Not only was it providing information about getting the technology, but it also shared a little bit of our story. Um, and we were sort of, you know, well on our way at that point to doing some fundraising. And so that sort of helped push the fundraising journey forward a little bit. Um, and so anything, anything that we would have wanted, uh, to have, we had, and I know that that's not the case for a lot of companies. And I, I think it's a really interesting conversation about, you know, making sure that you're, you're being efficient, but also, you know, uh, creating the things that you're going to need in the best case scenario, um, you know, if and when everything goes well um, and having that stuff ready for the day that, you know, you do get your maybe 15 minutes of fame and, and, and people start to come to you. Well, talk about that fundraising part. What were you looking to raise money to do? If, if you're comfortable, say, you know, let me know sort of in the ballpark of what kind of money you're trying to raise. What were you trying to do? And then and where did you get it? Yeah, the fundraising part is also, I think, a huge challenge for all entrepreneurs, um, especially in the disability tech space. Um, and thankfully, there seems to be a lot more conversation now happening about that, even than there was, you know, two years ago when I was first thinking I was ready to fundraise. I was absolutely not ready to fundraise two years ago, but I thought I was. Um, and so the, the, it's something that we're continuing to talk about in sort of like popular discourse, which is great. Um, I think it's really helpful to everybody, to entrepreneurs, to people with disabilities. It's very important. In terms of what we were doing, you know, we were looking for, for some funding uh, to basically continue to build out the technology and actually do some marketing. And those were sort of the main things at that time. I was also looking to hire an additional person, which 
it also would be about a year and a half before it actually turned out that we were ready for that. Um, but, you know, I was really, I was thinking ahead. I was excited. <laughs> and I think that, that that really helped us in a lot of ways. Ultimately, you know, looking back now, we've raised about a half a million dollars. Um, we're about to raise actually even a little bit more money to do some additional things. And we've put that toward everything from, you know, building some of these AI capabilities to doing marketing to developing the technology further um, and and doing some hiring, which as a company is really important for us. And um, yeah, we are also, and this is something we're really excited about uh, and we're able to do since the fundraise is in addition to Reboca just being something that you as an individual could subscribe to for a couple dollars a month, we are beginning now to work with institutions to make the full set of Roboca's capabilities available in their space. And we do that with geofencing technology, and so there's no sort of additional technological burden for the organizations that we work with. Um, they just kind of sign up with us. We build a geofence around their space, and then when people enter that space, all of the features of Roboca unlock automatically on their own personal device. And so propping up sort of that capability was something that we created um, as a result of the fundraise. And we're, we're super excited about that. We've had some, some good feedback and, and some good traction there so far, too. The app is downloadable for free, but you have a subscription service. Can you talk about why you decided that pricing model? I mean, I, I guess obviously you felt like you needed to raise money from, uh, you needed people to, to pay a few bucks a month to sort of keep yourselves going. But uh, what was the thought process behind free and then a subscription on top of that? Yeah. So the free version exists um, because I believe that a free version should exist. Um, you know, it's there's a lot of health equity challenges, especially in vision, especially for people with disabilities. And, you know, we are the first company to build technology specifically for people with moderate vision impairments. And it was important to me that at least a basic set of features were available for free with the with the goal of really supporting that community kind of before anything else. With that said, you know, we are a for-profit entity and in order to continue to do the work that we do, in order to continue to build good things for the low vision population, you know, we need to make money. And um, the reason we sort of set that up as a subscription model is because you're not just paying for a baseline software um, that you know you download one time and never changes again. We are continuing to make additions. We are continuing to make updates. We are continuing to build new things and, and deploy new things. And so, you know, the same way that you're you're subscribing to like Spotify because new music comes on there and you want to continue to listen to that music, um, you know, Roboca is available on a subscription because we're continuing to work on it. And I think that is one of the things that differentiates what we're doing from some of the other apps that are that are like totally free that nobody has updated in six years. Right. And if you stopped updating it, then people would be justified in stopping their subscriptions, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> so there's motivation on both sides there. I wonder about uh, marketing and especially to the low vision community, because I, I you got I mean, a lot of people have some kind of vision loss, older folks and, and the like. But yeah. I wonder how you find and become and make people aware of your app within the low vision community. Did you did you think about the marketing aspect when you were sort of getting the word out? That specific marketing aspect when you were trying to get the word out? 
Yeah, that has been one of the most, I think, interesting challenges about what we do is that there is um, nobody has ever worked for this population before. Nobody has ever created technology specifically for people with moderate vision impairments. And as a result of that, there is no other like product or service or space that I can even go that would allow us to specifically target the population for whom Roboca is meant. And so that means that I don't have the luxury of like targeting a Facebook ad to moms who just bought an REI backpack. You know, it's, we are creating that community and that population completely from scratch. And that's really hard to do. Um, I, it has been sort of the honor of my life to be able to do that and to, you know, create the first Reddit forum that is specifically for the experience of low vision because it's different than the experience of blindness. And those people, people like myself, need different things and, and want different things and have very different challenges and the communities that exist to support, you know, people who are blind and have low vision, you go to those communities and they're almost exclusively discussing the experience of blindness, which is incredibly important. It's something that absolutely deserves to have its own space, um, but it's very different from the experience of low vision. And low vision people come into those spaces and they suddenly feel like they're not disabled enough or like they don't deserve to be there um, because their life experience is not being discussed. And so... That was an opportunity that we really had to create an Instagram account sort of focused on moderate low vision and create that Reddit forum focused on moderate low vision. And, uh, you know, that sort of beyond just a marketing channel, you know, those were communities that actually meant something to people. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the ways we've managed to bring together this population in a way that, you know, does also kind of help promote the technology we've developed. But beyond that provides value to the community. I mean, to be fair, there have been assistive technology specific products, the hardware products, handheld magnifiers out there for folks with low vision and I and and all CCTVs and that sort of so that kind of technology has existed but existed but not in terms of like, you know, phone apps and certainly not in the social media era. I mean, what I'm hearing is that a lot of the tools you've used in marketing have been really specific to the internet era that we're in now, whereas in the past you might have gone through more institutions or more conferences that were focused on accessibility, different accessibility issues that included low vision. But now you're able with social media, it seems like, to sort of say, this is the population that I I'm addressing, and here's a thing you might like. Is it, does that make sense? Because you have a TikTok, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, you're, you're doing all the right <laughs> platforms. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that one of, the, one of the pillars that I had stood up really early on in, in Reboca as a company was that I didn't want what we do to feel clinical. I didn't want it to feel like the way that a digital magnifier feels or that a CCTV feels, this sort of medical device-like thing that was super-duper expensive and, you know, kind of a pain in the neck to carry around. Um, I wanted us to be really a technology company that happened to be doing vision. Um, and I think that that has served us really well in a lot of ways because we are able to take advantage of, you know, social media and 
some of the ways that people are gathering information about things right now um, and not only, you know, provide a technology to the group that we are providing technology to, but to also create and maintain those communities. So uh, you mentioned an Android app. That was a question I was going to get to. What, what are your plans for Androids? Yeah. Um, so not too much I can say on that yet. Um, we do not have an Android version of Roboka at this point in time. Um, we do have a wait list that is available for people to kind of let us know that they're interested in an Android version. And that really helps us to kind of understand um, what what that population looks like and um, to to determine kind of how and how and when that's going to happen. Unfortunately, it's not very easy. A lot of people come to me and they're like, why haven't you done this yet? Like, all you got to do is copy and paste the code. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I wish that it were that easy. Um, but, you know, we're doing a lot of advanced image processing. We're doing some artificial intelligence. And unfortunately, it's just not an easy port over. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a, an exact timeline that I can share on that at this point. But we definitely encourage people who are interested in the Android version to let us know. Yeah, what are some of those challenges, briefly? I mean, is it about the fact that Android phones have so many different camera systems? Is it mainly in the camera system or is it in the, the app development side that you think are, are some of the biggest challenge points for you? It's all of the above. Um, you know, Android is operating on an entirely different operating system. Um, and the Revoca app at this point has been designed for the iOS operating system because we're doing it. All of the image processing has to be kind of rebuilt from the ground up. Um, you know, the AI definitely has to be adjusted pretty significantly to accommodate the, the Android devices. And there is just a whole lot more variability in that platform, um, both with cameras, both with, you know, processors, with, you know, screen resolution. And we want to make sure that when we provide a technology to that population, we are providing a version of the technology that is actually usable um, and is of the same quality as the iOS version. Anything more you want to say about future plans? You talked about AI, but do you have other apps in mind or do you think it's going to be enhancing Roboka? What, what are you guys getting ready to do? Well, I definitely can share just a little bit about something we are actually working on in partnership with the Johns Hopkins Disability Health Research Center that we're very excited about. Um, we're actually working with them to develop a, a dedicated sort of community platform that allows people with vision impairments specifically to connect um, over specific problems and, and to share advice and sort of a mentor-mentee kind of relationship. There's not too much more I can say about that at this point, um, but we will be looking for beta testers for that in probably the next three to six months. And so, you know, if people are interested in that, uh, keep an eye out on, on Roboka's website and and on our social medias, and we will definitely be letting people know when we're we're looking for testers for that technology as well. But we're really excited to be working with such a fantastic team over there at Hopkins, and um, yeah, excited to see what this this new community platform will enable us to do again for the community. Cool. Anything we didn't talk about that you want to be sure uh, the listeners uh, know about Roboka or about about what you're doing? Uh, anything else we anything we didn't cover? I think we hit all the major points. You know, I guess I'll just double down on the, um, you know, we're really excited to be working with institutions now um, because it does take that cost burden off of the individual person. And so, you know, if you're listening out there and, you know, you're, you're a teacher or you work for a museum, um, you know, 
please reach out. We are excited to be able to start deploying the technology within institutions uh, really, really very soon. Um, and so I guess I'll just add that. Um, but other than that, I think I think we hit everything. Rebecca Rosenberg, it was really great to have you on the show. We will have links to the Reboca website and all the socials in the uh, in the show notes for for this episode. And uh, where, if folks are interested, why don't you just go ahead and give the the web address and any of the socials you want to? So if folks are interested in Reboca, they can find out more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the website is just Reboca.com. That is R E B O K E H dot com. And I think that we are we are Reboca Vision, um, so Reboca R E B O K E H Vision V I S I O N, all like one word. Um, I think on every platform, definitely on Instagram, um, and I think on TikTok as well. And if you're a LinkedIn person like I am, um, we are just Reboca Vision Technologies on LinkedIn. Great, Rebecca. Thanks for being here. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to chat with you as well. If you want to keep up with the show, go to relay.fm slash parallel. That's where you can subscribe and also find show notes for this and every episode, as well as information about our guests. You can also keep up with us on the socials at parallel at relayfm.social on Mastodon. I'm at Parallel Pods on X. But uh, don't spend a lot of time there, to be honest. I just make show announcements. So if you want to keep up with what's going on, if you want to chat, I would go to Mastodon. You can also go to the feedback page on uh, Relay.fm slash Parallel, and you can fill out a form if you have any comments about the show, if you have any guest suggestions or anything you'd like to see in the future. I'd love to hear your feedback about that, either Mastodon or through the parallel feedback form. I'll be back soon with another episode. Happy holidays to all who are celebrating.